Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Kenny Boyle about his contemporary novel, The Tick and the Tock of the Crocodile Clock. Kenny is a writer and actor born on the Isle of Lewis. In 2021, he received a new Playwrights Award from the Playwrights Studio, Scotland. His work often focuses on mental health, island life, folklore and mythology. Kenny's debut novel was published by an indie press and Kenny's done so much work himself to promote it, so we talk about his advice for writers nervous about publicity and spreading the word about your book. We also talk about how his novel started life as a one-woman play and how his own mental health inspired him to delve deeper into his main character's life. But before we get into that, here's Kenny with an excerpt from The Tick and the Tock of The Crocodile Clock. I have a sudden sense of awe. The road we're driving on has all been laid down by someone. Every metre of it is real. Took time to put there. Has a texture and its own story. It's got dents and bumps and maybe even the odd pothole. There are stones in there to aid the grip of the tyres and they're interspersed with absolute randomness. Every inch of the road is the same, yet completely different. There are miles of that. Hundreds of them. Thousands. But what's really mind-numbing is the grass. Every blade of grass is real. There are insects and birds and maybe the odd hedgehog hidden in there and those blades of grass weren't put there by anyone. They got there through a process of seeding and pollinating and photosynthesis and rhyme zones and lots of other plant words I don't fully know the meaning of. If every inch of tarmac is different and every inch of grass is unfathomably diverse. How many blades of grass would we pass today, and every one of them living and growing and individually full of fascination? That's just the stuff directly next to the car. I haven't even begun to try to think about the magnitudes of everything in front of us. I'm almost afraid to look up. I can't express any of that in words. I just can't figure out how to say it, so instead I just say... There's so much. Cat nods and smiles in understanding. I see some sheep. I try to be mature enough to resist saying, Sheep! I'm overjoyed when Cat has no such self-control. Sheep, she enthuses. Sheep! I agree with similar glee. So now, we know there are sheep. 
Hi, Kenny. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Tick and the Talk of the Crocodile Clock. Hello, Chloe. It's absolutely lovely to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And I'm impressed that I got the title right on the first go. <laughs> so am I, yeah. So can you tell us what The Tick and the Talk of the Crocodile Clock is all about? Absolutely. So it's one of the things that I've really struggled with as a debut author is people asking what the book's about. And I just go, um, I don't know. I just wrote it. It's just just read it. So I've boiled it down to it's the story of a girl called Wendy who works in a call centre in Glasgow. And um, she's unhappy with her life. She's unhappy with how things go. And she, she wants to be a poet. And she's uh, she's stuck in this life that she didn't really ever intend to fall into. Um, she meets a girl called Kat who is a bit of a wild child, a bit of a painter, and just sort of lives life the way that she wants to. And um, in a moment of bravery, Wendy quits her job, Kat quits alongside her, this is how they meet, and then they go off and uh, begin a, a, a sort of reign, a spree of uh, mild chaos, sort of mischief, I would call it, I suppose, like just gentle law-breaking um, <laughs> that doesn't really have any sort of um, any sort of victims as such, but allows them to live a rebellious life and live the life they want to be leading. And it sort of escalates up until the point where Wendy steals a priceless work of art and um, is on the run from the police and her friend Kat is nowhere to be seen. Right. And I want to speak to you about the inspiration for this novel because it started like as a play many, many years ago. And the play was called We Neverland and it was performed at the Edinburgh Fringe. So can you tell us about this play and your inspiration for it and how that became this novel? Because obviously play is a very different medium. And I think it was a one woman play. So how did you turn it into that a script and a play? How did that become a novel? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I trained at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland in Glasgow and part of our master's course in, in acting was to either write a dissertation about acting or um, what I thought was the easy route of writing a play and putting it on at the French and we'd get our final grades based on that. So I was like, well, writing a play, that's so much easier than writing a dissertation. I'll do that. What an idiot, because obviously it's not just writing the play, you've got to cast it, you've got to direct it, you've got to um, sell tickets, you've got to go to the fringe, you've got to do all this stuff. And uh, there's people in my course that were just sitting at home happily writing a dissertation while I was trying to organise rehearsal times. But we had to tackle a topic that was um, popular in Scottish theatre at that time. We could choose our own and something that we thought was important. So... There'd been a thing in Scottish theatre at the time when I was at the Conservatoire where there was a big move to move away from the fact that two thirds of all performers on stage were male and only a third of all performers on stage were female. So if you went to see a show, often there were shows with three actors and usually the breakdown would be two males and one female on, in these three-hander shows. And also the female characters were always um, the voice of reason. Or if they were a strong female character, they were literally flawless. They would just, you know, show up and just sort things out because they were strong and they knew what they were doing and they were the lady and they had their stuff sorted out, you know, and the men were flawed characters who had interesting character developments. Um, so basically women were getting a raw deal there was no good parts for actresses and uh, and the parts that were available for actresses especially actresses in about their their 20s were um boring so i thought i'll give this a go um 
so I wrote a one-woman play for an actress that I knew, trying to make a, a flawed, interesting character, uh, making sure I got feedback from actual real-life real women to tell me if I was doing a good job or not. And, um, and also, because of the stress of the course, I wrote this hour-long play really, really quickly. And then we put it on, and it was pretty, pretty well received. It went pretty well. Uh, people liked it. And I didn't realize at the time really what I was writing about. So when it was a play, it was, uh, it was kind of just um, a story about a girl who stole a painting and uh, what happened to her friends and um, all of the mental health stuff that I think we're gonna go on to talk about was there, but because I personally had not been diagnosed with my mental health, um, I never liked the word problems. We'll use problems for now. My mental health problems, I didn't realize that what I was really writing about in many ways was my own struggle with my own mental health because I hadn't yet acknowledged that I had a struggle with my mental health. So that all came later and I'm sure we'll get to that. Uh, but um, for now, yes, yeah, so the play was, I mean, it was surprisingly similar really. Uh, the, the novel is a more fleshed out version of it. Um, the character of Wendy is more um, three-dimensional. There's a lot more to her in the novel because in an hour-long play, you've only got so much time. Uh, you've got this one actress playing every single character in the story. Uh, she was playing Wendy, she was playing Kat, she was playing Lindsay, the call center boss. Um, she was playing Kevin, the, uh, the, the would-be boyfriend. Um, which was another thing that we wanted to do. So uh, we, we set out specifically to write the character of Kevin in the play as someone who um, only showed up briefly, said something relatively sensible and was ignored. He's changed <laughs> quite a lot in the novel, but we were like, you see, people accept that for, for a female character. She gets to show up, say something quite sensible and get ignored. And then that you're like, that's a female character. So we wanted to throw Kevin in to do that and see if people would accept it. And people didn't. People were like, oh, I'd love to see more of Kevin. And it was like, well, that's telling, isn't that's it? That's the point. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but Kevin is Kevin is more um, fleshed out in the in the novel. There's a character called Freya, and there's a bunch of flashbacks to university that happened in the novel that weren't in the play. But the spirit and the heart and the message uh, are the same as the play. So the play has the play became the novel quite quite seamlessly, really. Um, and it happens alongside my diagnosis of my mental health um, problems, which is the word we'll say for now, even though I don't think we are problems, but yeah. <laughs> well, you talking about the play really makes me wish there was a revival because now I've read the novel, I'd love to see the play and just kind of compare the two in my mind. I think that'd be amazing. Um, but yes, one of the issues that I did want to speak about was um, this theme of mental health which is which is a big part of the novel and you obviously have had personal experience with it and I think a lot of writers feel like they don't know what their book's about until maybe they're halfway through or they've finished it and sometimes you almost look back years later and think so that's what that was about so tell us then about kind of where this mental health angle came from. Mm. So, as I said, I, I sort of rushed to play it. That probably is the right word, actually, uh, during my final year at the Conservatoire. And because of that, it was um, 
it's almost like if you if you do sort of unconscious writing, if you just let your pen go crazy on a piece of paper while you close your eyes and don't focus, you'll write things that you're thinking that are deep down in your psyche or whatever. So I guess I, I did that in writing the play because I wrote a character who very clearly was suffering from social anxiety, depression, and, um, and another character who uh, was suffering from those things and also suicidal ideation. Um, I went through a bit of a tough time uh, after leaving the conservatoire. I mean, I also went through a great time. Like I, I met my wife uh, just before I started the conservatoire. We have this incredible life. I did lots of acting, but um, over that time also, uh, my wife made me realize um, just by being like a, a supportive figure in my life and, and caring for me that I had sort of some unresolved trauma and PTSD from things that had happened in my past and previous relationships and stuff like that. And also um, just strange reactions in some social situations that I suppose I always knew that I had, but it took someone that really cared about me who was there constantly to be like, maybe you should talk to someone about this. Um, so I got over the fear of doing that and I went to do just that. I, I went to the doctor, I said, hey, this is what's happening. And quite quickly got a diagnosis of depression and anxiety, uh, social anxiety specifically. And they were like, we're going to get you into cognitive behavioral therapy. We're going to start, you can talk about this with a, with a professional and it'll be really good for you. It'll be good for your mental health. And this was uh, at the, in December of 2019. So they were like, next year, cognitive behavioral therapy. And I was like, cannot wait for next year. And then next year, this little thing happened. Don't know if you've heard about it. COVID pandemic, it was very minor, um, but basically the NHS was quite overwhelmed. Um, so they didn't have time to be doing cognitive behavioral therapy with someone who wasn't at risk. You know, I've been living with these things my entire life, basically. So I wasn't really under threat and I don't suffer from suicidal ideation. So like that wasn't a danger with me. Um, so I had to find some way to sort of deal with these new revelations about myself. So I thought back to We Never Lands and realized that the whole time I'd been writing about these things and hadn't realized it. So I went back to the play and started developing it into a novel where I could write it again, but know what I was talking about. So whilst Wendy still doesn't know what's wrong with her, um, I now do. So I can write it from, I can write Wendy's journey with an ending because now I've come to the end of that journey I can take her through the journey as well and let her come to the ending of the journey too. So let's talk about Wendy then because the novel is completely from her point of view and she as you've mentioned she is a is a wannabe poet she's a storyteller and the novel follows her train of thought sometimes jumping around um, sometimes going off on these tangents. Tell us about Wendy and then how you approached her voice was it something that kind of came easily to you I guess because you'd spent time with her writing the play writing a longer piece you already knew her pretty well so how did that voice come to you was it was it an easy thing to do yeah I think it was really um I think because the play was written with an actress in mind who I knew well uh it was easy to imagine her voice so that that quite quite easily translated to the play and also because I've known a lot of, well, most of my friends throughout my entire life have been 
um, strong, and I say strong in like the, the, the true sense of it, you know, people that have gone through struggles and, um, and are, are strong because of it, not like, not like invincible, um, but strong women, um, and have like so many strong female figures in my life that I didn't find it too difficult to sort of tap into a voice for Wendy and also the kind of person she is is the kind of person I am you know like all all writing is autobiography in a sense so uh, <laughs> even if you're writing something like utterly preposterous like set in space or something and it's all about aliens like in a way it's still still autobiography deep down mm -hmm. so Wendy in in lots of ways is me but in lots of ways is an amalgamation of a lot of strong flawed wonderful um women that I've known throughout my life and cats the same um with cats it was uh slightly more difficult because um cat is cat isn't written in honor to and in homage to I suppose the friends that I've had who did struggle with um thoughts of taking their own life and also the ones who succeeded so it's uh you know cat cat is a uh, cat was harder it was harder to write cat because i understood her less because that's not something i personally have ever experienced but also at the same time i wanted to do it right because i felt if i didn't then it would be a disservice to the people who aren't still with us or the people who are who wouldn't want to be represented incorrectly yeah absolutely there's one thing i wanted to ask you about wendy and i've mentioned this she's um, quite a storyteller and there are certain chapters where she'll go on this lengthy story about how her parents met and then you turn the page and she goes none of that was true that whole last chapter I made it up and you really play with this kind of unreliable narrator and I guess all first person narration in novels is unreliable but what was it about that unreliable narrator you kind of wanted to play with was that something you felt kind of you wanted to explore or is it just because it's part of Wendy's kind of character. I suppose it's both, but I don't like the idea of a passive reading experience. You know, I think uh, I think to create that real connection with Wendy, to make Wendy feel like a real person, there has to be a relationship, or in, in, in the way this book's written anyway, there has to be a relationship, not just between her and the other characters on the page, but between her and the reader. And I thought a fun way to build that relationship would be to um, have her mess the reader around a little bit, you know? She's like, she's like that friend that you always tell to meet you an hour earlier than you actually want to meet them because you know they're gonna be late. You, uh, you love them, they're your friends, but you know their flaws. And I kind of wanted uh, that relationship to happen between anyone reading the book and Wendy, who by about halfway through, they're like, oh, you're such a liar. Um, I like you, but God, you've got to stop lying all the time. And it's, or, or even like reading things and being like, I know you're lying, Wendy. Why are you still doing this? Jesus, like, I'm aware that this isn't true. Um, and that's a real relationship. You know, that's the kind of thing that if, if say you were friends with Wendy and you were friends with someone else, you might go talk to the other person and be like, oh, Wendy was lying again. I mean, she's, I love her, but she's got to, she's got to stop lying to me all the time. Um, and I think that's that's real, you know, that's a real person. And also from my own perspective, it allowed me to play another trick on the readers later on in the book, which you are aware of. So um, yeah, just playing with expectations all the time. 
I just like to keep people on their toes. I think Wendy likes to keep people on their toes as well. So that's what was going on there. <laughs> and then tell us about her friendship with Kat, because in some ways they're similar. They have, um, there's a kind of, uh, well, I guess Wendy in, in her own way is sort of rebellious, but Kat brings out that side of her and makes her kind of experience life. So what is it that draws them together then? What would you say is the the elements of their personality or things that you try to kind of enhance about their friendship and connection? I guess through life, um, if you are a little bit lost, um, as I'm sure many people, if not most people have felt at some point, then there are two different kinds of person that can find you, either someone else who's also lost and you find your way together, or someone who wants to take advantage of your being lost in order to gain for themselves. I didn't want it to be super clear which one Kat was in the book, uh, definitely not at first. I didn't want the readers to know for sure whether Kat was um, a helping hand or something more insidious. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted them to feel protective of Wendy and possibly tentatively protective of Kat as well, because she, she might be in danger too, or she might be the danger. But I think what drew them together is because they both think the other one is really cool, you know? Like, uh, you only hear it from Wendy's point of view. So from Wendy's point of view, Wendy thinks Kat is really cool. Wendy thinks Kat is way too cool for her. But Kat is a master of hiding how her problems are affecting her. And Kat doesn't have as many friends as you might expect her to have from hearing Wendy's perspective of her. Um, mm. And really, Kat needs Wendy just as much as Wendy needs Kat. Kat's angry, you know? Kat's had a tough life. She's furious at things. She just wants to lash out. Wendy doesn't want to lash out. Wendy's terrified of lashing out. So together, they make one functioning human being. <laughs> <laughs> I think often when writers try and either build a kind of romantic relationship or a, a friendship is looking for that thing that they're missing in another mm -hmm. person and, and often bringing someone in that fulfills that and I think that with Kat and Wendy you can see how they're they they're there for each other in in the ways that they need to be yeah thank you I think that so I've had one or two people say to me um so our our Kat and Wendy is that is it is there something there? Is it a romantic relationship? Is like, and I think the answer to that, first of all, is like, it's whatever you want it to be. You read the book. I've, I've written it. You read it. Now, now it's yours, the reader. You can make your own choices. But I would say they love each other. Um, but I, I didn't intend for them to love each other romantically. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's maybe a little bit lacking, actually, in this in this world where we, we need the big drama. Um, a platonic relationship is... A valuable thing and it's a thing that people need in their life someone that they can trust not not just because they are romantically involved with them but just because they are friend soulmates i suppose platonic soulmates and i think that's what they have mm. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And one thing that they kind of have in common or certainly talk about is their kind of philosophy on life or their kind of um, political opinions. And following you on Twitter, I know that you are not afraid to share your opinions and are kind of politically engaged as well. So did you approach writing the novel, or even the play, with this feeling of, you know, it needs to say something or it needs to have a wider message? Was that ever in your mind or did it just kind of come out naturally when you were writing? I don't think I ever write anything with the intention to say something. I think that that makes your writing ultimately risk coming across as preachy or polemic and stuff like that however I'm also very bad at shutting up um, <laughs> about my opinions and views and um, like like you said on Twitter I don't need to be on Twitter um, tweeting out these uh, not even controversial just like <laughs> just these political views talking about how I hate the Tories and how migrants are people too and trans people are people too and all of these things because like why is everyone being so horrible to minorities it's disgusting I don't need to be doing that. I'm just inviting trouble to myself. I'm probably not not actually helping very much. But then at the same time, I can't see injustice and shut up. Like I it's I don't know if it's a weakness or a strength. I'm incapable of it. And um I suppose I I need to acknowledge my privilege, you know, because I'm a middle-aged cis white guy. Uh so people, for better or worse, I mean definitely for worse. For some reason, listen to my opinions more than they listen to marginalized people's opinions. 
So if they're not listening to the people they ought to be, then hopefully I can at least say some of the things that the people they're not listening to would want said. Um, so yeah, I got I got to learn how to shut up on Twitter. I never will. Um, so that's that's my life. But um, when I wrote the when I wrote the book, I wasn't trying to write an anti-capitalist um, novel. However, Kat is definitely the kind of person just out of university who is an activist. You know, she doesn't like how the system is. She doesn't like how people aren't treated fairly, and um, she would prefer a more um, equal society where people are valued for what they do rather than how much money they make. And I thought that was a really strong choice for Kat. And then obviously because of who I am as a person, as soon as Kat started, started talking about these things, I was like, right, time to write a socialist manifesto. So <laughs> I, tried to, I tried to keep it out of the book too much because the thing I haven't really gone into so far, and it doesn't sound like it from our conversation, is that the book is funny. It's a, it's a comedy for a lot of the time. And I didn't want to get too sort of drawn into making big societal points because in a way the point is to give people a sort of warm, fuzzy, comfortable feeling with these characters, not make them grab a placard and go out in the street and protest um, <laughs> or, or throw the book in the fire because it disagrees with their political views. So all of the politics that's in there came out later uh, it sort of came out organically but it's not the point of the book yeah and and the people that read the book sort of have two different views on it either they say like this is a really interesting book about mental health or this is a really interesting book about socialism and it's like it's interesting which one you think it is um <laughs> based on who you are as a person but also like you said it's not done in a beating you over the head with it way it is done in a humorous kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek although having got to know you i know kind of your feelings so perhaps I read it from that perspective, but obviously it's not done. That no one needs to fear that it, they're going to read it and think this is a really heavy book. You know, it's not at all. Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't want people to feel like they were doing homework. Yeah. Um, and and also perhaps helpfully, um, I had an editor who is just opposed to me politically in pretty much every respect. So if I started going to uh, to bleeding heart left wing liberal, um, he'd be like stop that um you need to you need to draw that back a bit because you're you're starting to lose track of the plots and the characters in favor of a wee rant about politics so uh so just tone it down a bit so actually having an editor who was like just just completely different from me um was probably a helpful thing so let's talk about your journey to publication then because your novel is published with an independent publisher lightning books and I was wondering if you could kind of tell us your journey to working with them and how your book deal came about. Um, do you have an agent? I'm not sure the answer to this. So please tell me your kind of journey to getting a book deal. Absolutely. So first of all, I don't have a literary agent. I have an acting agent. Um, having written the novel, which I, w I never thought I'd be able to write a novel. I'd said to Claire, my wife, a few times, like, it's too much. It's too much commitment, they're too long. Um, it's, I don't have the focus or the ability to sort of like just calm down and write for a prolonged period of time um, to write a novel. And she says, well, I mean, don't write a novel then, write a series of chapters, um, which when those short little chapters come together might be a bigger story. 
So uh, sat down and wrote a 2,000 word chapter, sat down and wrote another 2,000 word chapter. A couple of months later, it turns out that's a book. Um, so then after, after Claire essentially like tricking my brain into writing a book, I was like, okay, well, I've written a book. It's not good enough. No one will ever want to read this. So I will just let you read this. I'll let my mum and dad read this. I'll let my siblings read this. Maybe my in-laws, maybe my dog. Uh, and and that's it. And then she was like, okay, fine. No, it's really good. I really like the book. Maybe just send it to like a few publishers. And I was like, okay, but they'll never they'll never want it. And she was like, no, well, maybe they won't. Maybe they won't. But it won't cost you anything to send it to them. So I sent it out to three publishers, and I didn't like I didn't even dare approach the sort of big publishers because I was like, well, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. And then of the publishers I did send it to, um, two of them said, no, thank you. And one of them said, let's see a full manuscript. And, uh, and then, then I was like, well, I mean, they're never going to want to see the full manuscript. And Claire was like, just send the manuscript. So, um, so I sent it and they liked it and, and here we are. And I feel guilt. I feel guilty about these things because I know that there's people that go for years and years and years submitting and keep on getting knocked back. And I was lucky because of the time that I submitted, exactly what they were looking for, the nature of the book and all of these things. And I always have to like remind myself that there are writers out there who are incredible, who are writing books that could change the world, but who haven't been picked up yet because the market isn't right just now. So I, I don't think I deserved to be picked up by a publisher that fast any more than the people that haven't been picked up by a publisher did. But I'm grateful that I did. So essentially, for me, it was kind of easy, which makes me feel like a bit of a, a bit of an ass, to be honest. Uh, so it all just kind of happened. Um, and I know that's not everyone's journey. I would say every publication journey comes with an element of luck, but it's not, it's not just luck. You know, there is talent involved. It's not just, you know, a lottery. So I still think, and I mean, it sounds like Claire has become your agent in a way, almost a reverse <laughs> psychology agent by telling you not to write a novel, but to just to write some short stories or write some chapters. And yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've got a great agent there. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> this is the thing. So, I mean, obviously she's got her entire, her own entire like career happening as well. Uh, and and at the same time, she's having to basically trick me into success um, and yeah, she's so she's she's incredible. Uh, I'm a very very lucky man. I also run a murder mystery company that I only run because Claire said, "Why don't you try and make that a career instead of something you do for fun?" And now I do. So uh, so yeah, she's a she's a good egg. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the sides of being published by an independent publisher is often the writer themselves have to do a lot of the marketing and publicity, and and I mean that's not something that traditional public pub, traditionally published authors don't have to do because I mean these days because of social media there is a certain level of expectation that authors will engage with fans or readers or whatever you want to call them um, online but for you you have done such an impressive job on marketing and publicizing your novel and um, I'll add your links to your social media in the show notes but I want everyone to go and see the effort you made to basically sing and dance about this novel so <laughs> tell us a little bit about that but also because I know other writers really worry about this and it's something that I get asked all the time is you know do I need to be on social media what what can I do 
what advice would you give to people that are worried about publicizing their book or marketing their book and feeling like they don't even know where to begin? Hmm. So I've been an actor for as long as I can remember. And in the acting world, you have you've got to have this sort of thick skin and you keep on getting in contact with people and they keep on refusing you and they keep on rejecting you and you learn not to take that personally and then you just keep on getting in contact with them because all that you've really got to lose there is that this person who wasn't giving you a job anyway starts to become annoyed with you and doesn't give you a job and that's sort of what the acting world is is constant rejection constant not worrying about it, constant getting back in touch. The publishing world, from what I've found so far, is a far friendlier place and people are far likely to not just ignore you and far more likely to get in contact with you back. And it's the same situation in that if you keep on contacting someone um, and they might get annoyed with you and they might decide never to work with you ever, but they weren't working with you already. So again, you haven't lost anything. But I think that publisher, uh, sorry, pub authors um, find themselves in a sort of unfamiliar environment because they aren't used to putting themselves out there. They aren't used to the rejection from people. And if someone does reject them, it hurts and they take it badly. And then they think, well, I should never bother that person again. Whereas I have this thick skin. So if someone tells me, no once for like a newspaper article or something like that then I'm like cool 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 no that's fine no we can't do it this month how about next month how about the month after that how about how about I do a little article for you how about I write something and eventually sometimes out of sheer frustration they go fine okay we'll put your book in our newspaper that's we'll do that um and the same with contacting other authors authors are so nice so I've got Peter May on the cover of my book saying that it's one of the best bookies read in years. I don't know Peter May. I just got in contact with him. I got in contact with like loads of people, anyone that I admired, any any author that I thought was really good, whose books I loved, I got in contact and told them. And I was really honest about things without begging. I was, I'd be like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never written a book before. I'd really love if you would read it and then maybe say something nice and I'll put it on the cover and then people might buy the book because you're amazing. Um, and it's the same thing, like send them an email, Maybe they don't answer. Send them another email a month later and be like, hey, did you get my email? Maybe they don't answer. Another month it's like, hey, hey, just checking. Did you get that email? Um, so basically just, just being a constant pain in the butt <laughs> uh, in the hope that it will um, it will lead to something. But it's time consuming, you know? There's hours and hours of work, like finding all these email addresses, contacting all these newspapers, contacting all these TV shows, radio shows, and the hit rate is low, like maybe one, two percent of people will answer you. Um, but if they're the right people, then it can be worth it, especially if your primary aim is to get your book out there. Um, because really, if I'd been if I'd been paying myself by the hour, like even just minimum wage, then this wouldn't be worth it because of the amount of hours it took. But if you're just really passionate about getting that first book out there and letting people know about it then it's worth the time and hopefully the next book will be easier because by then more people will have read the first one and they'll know about you already and you'll have a social media following and um it'll be easier to promote things don't be afraid to don't be afraid to promote your book on twitter 
basically. And also, you've done a really good job of going into bookshops, making connections with people, because I think that's one thing that's a really a, easy thing to do, because we're all readers. We all love books. How nice is it to go into a bookshop and have a conversation with a bookseller about a book you really loved? And you're not going in there to, to plug your book, essentially, but you're going in there to to meet people. And then, you know, if you go in on the third time and happen to bring your book, they know you by then. And, it, and yeah. yes, it, it's awkward and uncomfortable and you are embarrassed and you leave the bookshop wanting to die and, you know, cringing. But that, in a way, I don't think you are likely to get a bad response from booksellers because they love books. So why wouldn't they? Yeah. I've had one bad response the entire time I've been doing it. And I'm not even going to say what shop it is because that's not fair. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I had one shop that felt like walking into Black Books uh, and Bernard Black was working there and, uh, and that wasn't lovely. But I have social anxiety. I'm terrified of people in real life. You know, like if I'm an actor on stage given, given a script, then fantastic. I can entertain people. But see, when you put me in an actual social situation where I have to talk to people unplanned and they can say anything. Oh my God, they can say anything. Um, and I have to like communicate with people in that environment. I'm really bad at it because I have literal diagnosed anxiety about these things. And yet I still manage to force myself to go into these bookshops and booksellers is not a job that you get just to have a job. Booksellers love books. If you're working in Waterstones or if you're working, gosh, even more so in an independent bookshop, you probably know the majority of the books you have on the shelves. You've read a large amount of them. If you haven't, you've heard about them. And if someone comes in and says, hey, what book's good? You're not like, there's not a bookshop in the world where you go in and say, what book do you like? And they go, oh, I don't know, <laughs> don't really read, you know? So they love books. They love talking to people. Booksellers are good people. And unless you happen to walk into that one place where you've got Bernard Black working and uh, he's just like yelling at you. I didn't get yelled at. It wasn't that bad. But uh, then you're going to have a good experience. And also, like, it's so easy to get a book launch in Waterstones or, or Blackwells. Like, they're so up for it. They love it. They want people to do these things. They want to be part of the community. They want to be engaged with these things. All you got to do is ask. Asking feels like the hardest thing, but you're right. The, the worst answer you're going to get is no. Um, yeah. And you haven't lost anything. If you, even, if you, even if you feel you've lost a bit of dignity in the process, you haven't lost anything. Um, Kenny, I wanted to ask a little bit more about your um, script writing because you recently had your first radio play broadcast on BBC Radio 4 and it was also named Drama of the Week. Um, so congratulations for that. But how do your... How does your novel writing and your playwriting complement each other? How do they go hand in hand? I guess there is the correct medium to tell any story. And sometimes it takes a little while to figure out what that medium is. So I've already gone into like, you know, I'm I'm an actor and also I write radio plays. I am writing a, a stage play for Clear Studio Scotland. And I've written this novel, which started off as a play. Sometimes a story is not right for a particular medium. So the radio play, um, which was called Knock of the Banshee and was set in Cremore, where I'm from, the Isle of Lewis, is about that insipid, creeping feeling of a haunting and uh, a family situation. And because of the stuff that happens in that story, I would need 
a huge budget to have done it uh, on stage or um, to do it in a novel. There's something about the sounds in Lewis or the lack of them, the quiet, and the little noises you hear and stuff like that, that you can describe, you can say, oh, I heard a little noise and you're like, oh, good for you. But if you actually hear it on the radio, then it becomes terrifying. It's a, it's a horror now, it's an actual scary mm. thing and you start to feel frightened. Um, if I were writing the same story as a, as a novel, then I'd have to find other ways to scare the reader because it's not the same. But that particular story was right for the sound uh, and for hearing the voices but not seeing what was happening because that's exactly what it feels like when you think there's something in your house and you just don't know what it is. You can hear it, you can't see it, it's dark, it's perfect. Um, Sometimes you write a novel or a, or a radio play because you want um, a rocket to land on someone's forehead and you want like three cyclopses to come out and you want them to get a grappling hook and grapple to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Because um, you can't do that on stage and you can't do that in film. It's too expensive. So um, a novel or uh, a radio play is the right place for it. And I think that novels also have the benefit of um, people go into it and they don't need to be captured within the first three seconds. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're flicking through the channels or picking something on Netflix, you put something on and if it doesn't go bang, 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 pow, and catch you straight away, then you flip over, you try something else. I think people give books more of a chance. You don't need to like be yelling at people's faces and like waving your hands in front of them to get their attention with a book. You can delve into things more fully. You can have that sort of comfortable slow relationship with a reader and it's a more personal private thing all of them feed into each of them and I think sometimes you write one thing and realize that you created it in the wrong body and it needs to become something else to tell the story effectively and sometimes the hard part is deciding what medium it belongs to rather than uh rather than so rather than feeding into each other they're all the same thing in different masks so finally, are you able to tell us if you're working on anything new at the moment? Yes, I am. Um, so I'm working on the Playwrights Studio Scotland play. I won the new Playwrights Awards and I'm working on a play called Shora Stands on Concrete and Peat. And it's uh, a story about um, a boy, very much like me, who was born in the Isle of Lewis and grew up simultaneously in Glasgow, big city, and a tiny village on the Isle of Lewis, which is exactly what happened to me. And in the 90s, and the sort of pressures that come with not knowing your identity and not knowing who you are as a young boy in the 90s, when things like homophobia, for example, was rife, and like grappling with your identity in terms of your language, whether you're a, an English speaker, a Gaelic speaker, whether you're a city boy or a country boy, whether uh, the right way of life is um crofting or if it's having a cinema um and whether you are going to um believe in the homophobia that was rife at the time or if you're going to have the strength of character to think i don't think that's right so that's what the play is about um got lots of 90s music in it and stuff like that it's just fun times and as well as that, I'm writing another play, which uh, hopefully will have a life. I can't tell you who that is for at the moment because it's still in the early stages, but this is about haunted video games. And I am hoping to start writing my second novel um, sometime 
in December is when I hope to begin. Um, and that is going to also be a ghost story set in Lewis, set in Cremora. But, um, but just now I'm, I'm liking the folklore, the mythology, I'm liking reconnecting with my roots, which I was brought up to be somewhat ashamed of because people in big cities think that people that come from little villages in the Outer Hebrides are um, somehow lesser than them. And it's taken me until I'm almost 40 to realize that actually our way of life is just as valid as anyone else's. So now I'm exploring that, I'm exploring my language, I'm exploring my um, folklore, mythology, and writing these new things about this part of my identity that up until this point I have suppressed. Well, folklore is definitely my bag, Kenny, so I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what you write next. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me ramble and pretend I'm important. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was Kenny Boyle talking about his contemporary novel, The Tick and the Tock of the Crocodile Clock, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. <laughs>